This week, we have a new sponsor I want to tell you guys about. Davidson Defense. Davidson Defense is an FFL-licensed retailer and manufacturer of specialty parts and accessories for the modern sporting rifle. Founded and operated by enthusiasts with diverse backgrounds and decades of experience in the firearms industry. If you don't know Davidson Defense, they're a local company that has every part imaginable for the AR-15. A vast selection of parts and accessories at prices that cannot be beat. Whether you're building your first AR-15 or looking to chirk out one or more of your existing rifles, the knowledgeable staff at Davidson Defense is there to help. They have parts for all the popular AR calibers from 9mm pistol setups to long-range 308 builds. If you can imagine it, they have it, and then some. With their massive inventory, they're able to offer the best prices around, not only in their gun shop, but online too. Father's Day is coming up, guys, and it's time to start thinking about wives. What do you want to get your husband? Maybe it's an AR-15, a handgun, rifle, ammos, rare and hard-to-find guns, all there. You can get by going to www.davidsondefense.com and use the code FSDEAL. That's F-S-D-E-A-L online. Get a special 5% off discount available to Just Finding Strength listeners. Or you can stop by their location today in Orem, Utah on 333 North State Street. If you're into guns and live in Utah, Davidson Defense is your new best friend. So by now you know Tenny's Pizza, they're our favorite pizza joint and our number one sponsor. There's a couple reasons why Tenny's is really good at what they do. Probably the most is, well, they have amazing food, but they're able to do it at like this really efficient, very easy to reach cost price. For sure. Yeah, it, it's... Like what's no, so your price point's actually pretty low, right, Kevin? It's it's the lowest out there. So I think a lot of people don't realize at Tenny's we we have we try to keep our pricing really simple. So it works this way: if you want a medium pizza, which is a twelve inch pizza, you can get whatever toppings you want. There's twelve of them that we offer for five bucks. So, so every to- you can get like fifteen toppings. There's twelve. So 12 you yeah. get all twelve toppings. Yeah, and it'd be five bucks. Wow. So and then a large would be nine bucks. I think the, the funny thing to me is people always think that because we have affordable pricing for our pizza that yeah. it, it's lower grade, and that's such BS. That's like the exact opposite, really. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it's like, how do you get lower grade vegetables? You know, it's just like, do, do you guys grow it in, like, Peru or something like that? <laughs> you know, like, I, you know, and so, and we use awesome ingredients. Our cheese is 100% real, so... Literally, if you're paying more money for pizza out there because you think the higher price means better quality, at least in our case, that is not true. So come out to Tenny's. You guys can get an awesome pizza for 5 bucks for a medium or a large for 9 bucks, up to 12 toppings. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. Feed the family at a really cost-effective price through Tenny's Pizza. This week, we sit down and chat with Andrew Fagan. This guy's a freaking stud, and I'm super, super, super stoked for you guys to meet him and to get to know his story. You are not going to want to miss this one. I am... We were privileged to sit down and hear his story. It's incredible. Um, He's a police officer. He's been through a whole mess of stuff. Sit down and enjoy this one. 
Uh, I'm really excited for it. Also, I wanted to let you guys know that we are actively seeking sponsorships from people, like always. And if you are interested in getting therapy with me, I'm now accepting new clients. And I would love to work with any and or all of you. So reach out to us through Finding Strength Facebook page, Instagram, or to me personally, if that's something you're interested in. And I look forward to hopefully working with you guys. Without further ado, here you go. The next episode, another fantastic one. Andrew Fagan on the Finding Strength Podcast. Enjoy. Recording, in case you didn't know. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it is 8.44 a.m. on a beautiful Monday morning. We are here. <laughs> Which usually it's like, we, we literally do this at like 9 o'clock at night. It's like we put yeah. our kids to bed, then come do this, the podcast. This is a 12-hour turnaround. This is great. I so like, like um, I, it may take, I'm, so I'm waking up. I've got yeah. coffee in hand. We'll get you there. Caffeine is slowly starting to kick in. I can feel my eyes like. Opening a little bit more. We're going to do some jumping jacks. <laughs> we'll get things figured out. So we are here with, I mean, I want to say our good friend. But we don't really know you super well yet. We're going to become good friends by the end of this. Andrew Fagan. I'm certain of it. Yes. Matt, like purposely, this. I feel like this is the story of the podcast. You purposely like don't tell me anything about the guests. And then I'll come over and I'll be like, so now I need to hear everything because I, I know nothing about you. So I'm excited. Yeah. I know he, he gives me like this little piece of information. So that way he knows I'll start asking a million questions. Tease him by silence. That's right. That's right. Last episode, we had Corey on. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was just, that yeah, was, that was barely. When did we record that? We just recorded that not too yeah, long ago. Yeah, just a couple nights ago. He's a freaking stud. I've talked to him since. He really, I think he was really happy that he was able to put out his story and he was able to kind of like say things publicly that he's never said before. Yeah. I think that was amazing. So if you guys haven't heard the last episode with him, definitely I, check it out. That's the thing. I feel like a lot of people, like if people out there need to tell their story, I think it's important to vocalize it. I feel like once you do that and then put it out into the world, it's a huge stepping stone on kind of recovering and getting through and moving forward with your own life. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I think, I think if you tell the story over and over in your head, it's wholly other to say it out loud yeah. and hear yourself say it. And to know that every Truth. so many other people are going to hear it. Like right. you are being vulnerable and saying, here's my story, re- regardless of whether you agree with me or what I'm telling it. Like this is happening. It's a secret to a good marriage is being vulnerable. Truth. Very, Agreed. very true. Very, very true. Well, Okay, good. Let's Dude, let's start dropping this. the knowledge bombs already. Andrew's, Andrew's ready to go. So let's hear your story, man. I know. So Andrew, first let's... I mean, I've already asked you a couple of these. That's why I'm like, I'm going to be really quiet while we're getting ready. No, you're fine. I want to know where you're from. I want to know, like, just a little bit about, like, your childhood. Like, sure. you know, your family, what you grew up with, that kind of stuff. Okay. Family constellation in psychological parlance. <laughs> uh, grew up in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So I was born and raised in Dauphin County, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, I am the second of four children. Though my f- 
older sister is from my mother's first marriage, but in terms of my orientation and constellation in the family, she's my older sister. I didn't really care what her bloodline was, and you didn't see that. She was my older sister. So older sister, me, younger sister, younger brother. So two boys, two girls. Grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We moved around a lot. So that that figures heavily into part of my psychological makeup. That's hard. Dude, I, wouldn't, I couldn't tell you how many times, but we hear that, at least especially in my line of work, hear a lot. Moving around as a kid was really, really brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you well because you never you never establish those kinds of friendships. That I think they're so uh, important in in psychological development, so social psychological development in children. Just building those friendships. I mean, you make a friend, and you know, four months later, you're moving to a new school. That's hard. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, and you're doing that constantly. So we lived together in Harrisburg. Uh, we moved to Utah at one point. I believe I'm. Eight years old. In fact, I remember getting baptized in Layton, Utah, so uh, I can say that. And then we had to move back to Pennsylvania, or I don't know why we had to move, but we moved back. You're eight years old. You go because mom and dad said you're going. So uh, we moved back to uh, Pennsylvania, uh, to Hershey at this time. So I'm right there next to the chocolate factory. Uh, At one point, we lived in a little town called Hummelstown, um, also part of the school district, the same school district there that I went to. But... Um, so yeah, I mean, that's where we moved. That's, uh, so were you on East coast most of your childhood? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I would say, uh, for all of my developmental years up until I was, uh, 18, I was the East coast. Uh, maybe the last two years more, I was upstate New York. I lived with my dad, but, and we can get to this eventually. But at one point I, uh, I emancipated, I, I divorced my mom, basically. She was the custodian, so I emancipated myself. And you can do that legally at 14. I had to, to survive. And that's at 14. So mm-hmm. you say you had to had to, to survive. What do you... Well, my mother was very physically abusive. Oh, she, was a, she was a monster, and that's putting it nicely. Wow. She would beat me and tell me I was ugly, stupid, knock me unconscious, bloody me. Just, oh, my gosh. You know, you're going to be like your dad. She hated my dad, and so I became the personification of what she hated in my dad. And so I became the punching bag. I mean, I understand it now looking back, but as a uh, kid, that's, so you can't confusing. make sense of it then. But I remember there's a really powerful liberating day. I was always, always through the abuse, the sexual abuse, the physical abuse through all of it, whatever I was going through, there was just this voice inside me that says, I am not going to be statistically what the science says I'm going to turn out to be. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that kid. I remember thinking that as a young kid. I'm going to get through this. I remember telling myself that. Every blow, every every episode of abuse, I was just like, whatever's happening to me is not who I am. Yeah. I remember telling myself that. I don't know where that came from. Just very internal, very, yeah. very... That's pretty amazing intrinsic. Yeah, it is. When I look back, I, I, I realize that's not normal for abuse victims. That's not generally how pe- people discover that sense of I'm going to survive later at least in the stories I've heard. It could be that they, they have always thought that way and they just don't know how to you know articulate it, but I haven't talked to too many people that have said, yeah, I knew even when I was going through it, I was going to get through it. It was still overwhelming. You still have to experience it. You have to go through the feelings of abuse and trauma. You have to live it, but I just remember never giving up. So with your mom, it was just physical abuse, yes. right? Yeah, not sexual. What about... Um, and I'll be clear, that was the worst abuse of really? all that I went through. If somebody were to say, you know, ordinarily rank the trauma that was done to you, 
the sex abuse is easily processed because I can, I can just break that down really fast. What my mom said and did to me drove me to the things that are great that I ended up accomplishing. It's because she's your caregiver. This is the person who's supposed to you trust keep them. you safe. Yeah, there's so much Without trust. There's no exception. safety. There's no control. There's no. You feel worthless, and and the intimacy within your relationship mm-hmm. is so damaged that you're essentially a rudderless ship being thrown about on this well, plus ocean that, of chaos. That's your first relationship you know in life. Oh, yeah. is between you and your mom. And it was bad from the get-go. I, I remember even at two years old, I remember her wanting the afternoon alone. We lived in Pembroke, Pennsylvania, which is like a... It would be what South Salt Lake is to Salt Lake City. It's just a small little suburb of, of Harrisburg. But I remember it's my very first memory. It's when I started doing therapy. It's just kind of where we started... You know, I'm standing on a sidewalk is what the piece I wrote. I'm standing on a sidewalk and um, she's just yelling and screaming and just berating me. And I can't figure out why I'm going down to state this lady's house and not home with mom. And she just wanted to be alone all afternoon and watch soap operas. And she wanted somebody else to watch me while she did that. I couldn't make sense of it. I remember crying going, why can't I be with you? And her just yelling at me. And so... From a very young age, I had a sense that this lady, <laughs> you know, is... She doesn't get it. Yeah, well, she's... Well, the, the, the problem is that it's not all it's not all or nothing. It's both. The, the conflation of mom is good sometimes, mom, and then she's not, is it's kind of, you know, my, my own mommy dearest, just this monster. Yeah, so that, confusing. That, that you just never know when the monster's going to come out. And that's really the horror of it is... You, because at that, you know, and, and for abuse survivors, they, they'll, this will resonate with them. You start wanting to try and figure out when the next blow is coming, when the next, not, when the next chaos is coming. And you start to read people. You start to pick up on cues. You listen to voice intonation. You, you look at verbal cues. You, you pay attention to the way that mom is in the morning, and you can almost predict, oh, you know, here comes the, here comes the cold front, you know, it's, it's going to get nasty day. this afternoon. And you start to, you have to do that to survive. You have to start learning to be able to predict when the chaos is going to come. Were your siblings abused as you were? Um, my bro- Yes, we were all physically abused. Okay. My mom, yeah, she, she didn't discriminate. She took, I would say... And, and I don't know how you can quantify it, but uh, she really directed it heavily at me after my dad left. And I and that's and that's, you're the oldest boy, yeah. So yeah, so I mean, there's some Freudian implications there, some reverse Freudian implications. But um, yeah, my dad had left when or left when uh, I was 12, and so that that kind of fomented that that rage and that anger. Was that when the abuse? Started or just when it got it got worse. worse. No, she was always physically abusive. Okay. She was always beating us and yelling and you're stupid. I mean, that was just. I mean, part of what I had to overcome, and we'll get to this eventually in the story. What I did at Brigham Young University is just amazing compared to what I was given for any chance of even believing in myself. Then to wake up at a university and do what I did. So at fourteen, you leave. Where did you go? Um, so I emancipate myself. I had the help of a family in the LDS church, wonderful people. Uh, and I was good friends with their son, same age. And so I had that association with him. And I remember them saying, you can come live with us because I was just, I was being very open one day and saying, I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'm not living at home anymore. So I'm at 14. 
a 14-year-old kid saying this. Like, and I did. I, I got myself emancipated. And basically, I told my mom, either you sign those papers or I'll go to the police. Your call. You know. So I played hardball, you know. She didn't want any part of that. So So you stayed out there with that family. I stayed with them for a year and a half. It was interesting, too, because the... Sorry, I have to ask a question. Yeah. yeah. How does a 14-year-old boy get the stones, the gumption, the, the strength, <laughs> right, to go to your mother, who is the primary abuser in your life, and say, I'm out, and you have to allow it? What, what goes through your head at 14 to get you to that place? Well, it's, it's actually a watershed moment. It's a great question, Matt. Um, my best friend was over, this, the friend of my family, or the family that adopted me or for a year. They actually legally adopted me, so, um, but it only lasted for a year and a half. We'll get to that. But she started hitting on me, and she bloodied me. My friend's there. He's watching this. So she's hitting me in front of my friend. So that's not only abuse, but now it's humiliating. And I... That was it. That was the last straw. And I launched on her and beat the hell out of her. Hit her, stood over her. And, you know, kind of that scene from The Color Purple where Celie looks at Mr. and says, you'll never do that again. And I I just looked... Wow. Yeah, and I just looked at her and was like, you will never, ever do that again. And she said, get out. I said, okay. And I did. Like, gladly. Wow. Got out. It, it just, every time I hear, I mean, we hear so many stories here, and I just meet so many people, and it's just, it never ceases to amaze me how incredibly strong human beings are. We, we are so much more capable than we give ourselves credit. If we just, I, I lo- the thing that I love so far about your story, I'm sure it's just going to show up again and again, is you get that you have something within you that is powerful and that you can rely on yourself to show up. For sure. That's what human beings need to just embrace and accept and understand because yeah. as we go through difficult times, typically we look outward and we say, I need this and I need that and I need something and then I'll be okay. But you were able to look in and say, no, mom is not going to do this to me anymore. I'm going to take over and I'm going to take charge and make my life mine at 14. Mm -hmm. That's freaking incredible. A little younger than that. I remember the day that they announced they were getting divorced and I remember thinking it's weird. It's uh, it's ironic that I would be devastated by that because I'm already, you know, I'm being whacked around by my mom. I've got this history of being sexually abused by a family member. And, and that's my dirty little secret that nobody knows about, you know? And, uh, and yet I still want these two people to be together because that level of security was better than the imagined chaos that I, that I pictured with them not being together. Sure, that's your homeostatic yeah. environment. Yeah. That's like where you... It's crazy, but eat. it's my crazy, and it's working. At least that's, in my head, it's working. That's the best you know so far. That's yeah, right. Exactly. It's all I know. Well, and it's almost just like one more thing to add to your list of the trauma you're already going through. Well, right. it's abandonment. It's abandonment, clear and simple, right? Oh. Up, up to this point, it's been oh. shame, 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 shame. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait, dad's gone? Yeah. 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 In fact, it's funny you, you mentioned that word abandonment. That I probably spent a third of all of my therapy dealing with what abandonment did, not only to my sense of safety and securing the world, but my poor choice in women. 
you know, turning them into, to use the M. Scott Peck word, uh, cathecting them into being my mother role. And so I was never transacting psychologically with a woman as this peer other that I love. It was always, you're going to meet these, this little boy's needs inside me. Very dysfunctional, very unhealthy. I look back at those two wives and I'm like, I'm so sorry you got that version of me. I'm so sorry we ever made this decision to get married. It wasn't healthy. It wasn't good. Uh, but anyhow, so abandonment figured heavily into just the lens through which I saw the world and how I interacted in dating self-esteem. I mean, just it, it was so pervasive in its effect and it was so negative. Yeah. So you talked about sexual abuse. At what age did that, did that start, I guess? My first memory is five. Mm-hmm. And you said it was family member. Mm-hmm. Can, uh, can you say who? It was my older sister. Okay. And how long did this go on? I want to say till I was eight or nine. Okay. What's interesting, though, is, and, and this I'll, I will be vague on just because I'm in the middle of dealing with how I'm going to confront this individual, but um, I bear no animus, no anger, nothing to her. She was simply acting out what was being done to her. And you'll see this with, you'll see this in families where you have siblings that are all victims. You start to have sex play and kids just acting out what's being done to them. It's, it's horrible. What they, that's it's what they, they know. Call it, they call it sex play for a reason. Right. Because to a child, the psyche has to turn it into a game for it to be survivable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and really, I'm just like, well, and then you have the, the psycho-neurobiological implications of you're wired for that to be pleasurable, so you're trying to, you're trying to make sense of the fact that your body's so going... So confusing. Wow, this feels good, but your brain's going, yeah, but this just doesn't it's seem wrong. right. Yeah. And you have these boundary violations, but you have this sensation that says it's pleasurable, and you're just, you're five, and you're just trying to make sense of, this is confusing, this is chaotic. Well, and you don't know, like, I don't, I don't know how you would know that's, that that's wrong. You know, it's in your mind, I, I would assume as a five-year-old, it's not wrong. It's, no. There's I, nothing wrong with this situation. It's may, may feel awkward or different, but there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I, I, I didn't put value judgments on what was happening to me. I, I don't even know that morally I was developed enough to do that. I had some sense it was off. You know, I had some sense that this just didn't seem right. It seemed dark. I mean, I will say that. I was present enough to go, it just doesn't seem right. I just couldn't tell you why it didn't seem right. right. And that's why children typically don't tell their caregivers, especially mm-hmm. in an environment where you don't feel safe, about sexual abuse that's going on. More often than not, that's typically the case. It's kept somewhat secretive for that reason, because there's this shame component there that's built in heavily where we, we don't understand cognitively, like at a brain level of an adult, why this is wrong. Not necessarily wrong, but why it doesn't feel right. And a five-year-old can understand, okay, this is something that I do behind closed doors. And it will remain there. Mm -hmm. Because if it comes out, I have no idea what's going to happen, and that's terrifying. So it stays behind closed doors Mm -hmm. for decades often. Well, I did have some sense as a child that, uh, that, boy, if the adults knew... There was that, I, my recollection is such that, that yeah, this, this probably isn't going to go down well if the right. adults in my life know this right. is happening. And at this point, we, we were, my sister and I, it was just her and I living in Pennsylvania. At this point, my parents were living in Utah, and they sent my sister and I back to live in Pennsylvania for a whole year. 
And so it was just me and her with living who? back there with my grandparents, okay. my maternal grandparents. It actually, with the exception of the, the abuse that was being, you know, perpetrated on me, I don't even like using that word perpetrated. It was just sex play, you know. I, my sister's dead now. She took, you know, she ended her life at, in 2011. And there's some debate about that. She stopped taking her meds and didn't want to live anymore. And I remember one of my final phone calls with her. She's just like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And she just didn't actively work to take care of herself and just let herself die, which, you know, I can't say I blame her. Did you ever have a conversation with her before she died about what happened when you were younger? Oh, yeah. You did? Uh Uh-huh. No, and she apologized and... No, it was great. I mean, I, I would awesome. say that she went to her grave knowing. I told her, I says, we were kids, Laurie. And this is my therapy and my schooling talking at this point. Oh, I've yeah. been able to process it. And I've just been able to say, what else were you going to do? She was traumatized way worse than I was. What people don't know, and this would be the first place that I ever said this, but uh, and I'm going to sit on it, but um, I recorded a two-and-a-half-hour conversation with her that I listen to still. I can hear her talk. And she tells me everything. Who did it, when, their names, names everybody. Uh, and I hold that. It's evidence, basically. Uh, and it's really interesting to me because it paints a picture. It, it, it explains how she got to the point where that was something she did to me. And I just go, oh, you know, the psychological axiom, all behavior is purposeful. Makes sense. Doesn't make it less painful, but it makes sense. But that's pretty, like, that's incredible, especially because she's passed away, that you were able to have that that closure in your life where you could have that oh, conversation. No. Could you imagine if you never got to discuss that and hear that and learn that about her? Like, I feel like that's, that would I think be really she helpful needed to for hear, me. Yeah, she needed to hear from me. And I says, I, you know, I remember telling her, do you, do you know how well I'm doing? I'm doing good. I mean, everything mom said I was, I'm not. I'm turning her into a liar with a capital L. And it's going to be Ooh, poetic. I love that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I like making liars out of my doubters. Just in a quiet, graceful way. Just go ahead. Shit on me. Tell me I can't do it. But I'm going to go live my life. And you're going to regret saying what you said simply because you were being nasty and you know like, it. I will prove you wrong. Yeah. Just watch me. Well, and, it, and prove you wrong was a good place to, to be, but eventually it turned into prove me right. Yeah, I like that. Because, uh, because some people are never going to give you the validation you want. Mom's never going to acknowledge what she did to me. I told her outright just as recently as a few years ago. Until you acknowledge what you did to me and take responsibility for what you did to me, you are not welcome in my life. You're not welcome in my, your grandchildren's life. You're not allowed to have a relationship with me or my family. Do you understand? I mean, very, very emphatic, very, very owning my place. And these are the boundaries. And you I, love, are, I love the boundaries. Oh that is the best boundary ever. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And she, to this day, will not. She tries to mitigate her conduct. She tries to minimize her conduct. And I'm like, do you know what I do for a living? I talk to liars for a living. So you're going to give me a full 100% contrite confession and an acknowledgement, and unless it's what I want, you're not welcome. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people understand that that's, maybe some do, but that's something we are allowed to do. 
we have that right as human beings mm-hmm. to hold a boundary that firm mm-hmm. with a parent, with a sibling, with a spat, with whoever, right? I mean, but, but why, why do we need to continue to take the perpetuated abuse of people just because they share a bloodline with us? No, it's nauseating, actually. It, it is. It and, is. It's and sickening. My experience has been that religion, the religion of my youth, fomented that very mentality that somehow honoring our mother and our father supersedes just the basic, a basic modicum of psychological health and well-being that you should put up with that. And I'm like, I don't have to put up with it. And I no. don't care what some ancient edict in a decalogue says. I, I'm not going to listen to that. No. Some invisible unseen sky daddy doesn't get to tell me that I have to honor my mother. She didn't honor me, and it was her job to honor me, and I'm not going to take that. Well, she didn't deserve it. No, she absolutely doesn't. To this day, she doesn't deserve mm-hmm. it. Well, I'm, I'm of the opinion that none of us deserve much of anything, but uh, uh, she, she is not welcome in my life until she meets those. And here's right. the bottom line. I don't know that she'll ever be in a place, or that I'll be in a place where she would be welcome, but I would I would let her have some contact with me, but it would it would that would just be a beginning point, and it would have to right. re, it would have to define itself as it unfolded. It's it's required that there is reciprocity in the relationship mm-hmm. you want for yourself, because right. if my relationship is all about the other person or all about me, the lack of reciprocity, the lack of circular give and take, creates this unhealthy power dynamic on either side, and that is going to meet needs that are not the greatest needs. And we're going to feel sold short. We're going to feel less than. We're going to feel small and unimportant, whether we're on either side of that relationship. And so boundary holding becomes this tool that we can use to create circular, healthy, nuanced, beautiful, deep relationships that unless we are able to hold boundaries, those relationships fall flat. Yeah. Uh one of the things I realized early in, in my counseling, and at least, and counseling really was there's the mom issue, there's the dad issue, and unbeknownst to me, there was the church issue. And it was almost as if the mom and dad issue clouded the eventual church issue. That, and the church issue becomes the 800 pound gorilla sitting in the room that I just didn't want to see. But one of the things I learned early was that I, there was a little boy to use the Bradshaw you know, championing the inner child, uh, John Bradshaw does really good stuff. But I always like that idea of going back and reclaiming or rehabilitating a a version of ourself that is stuck someplace emotionally, is stuck someplace psychologically. And for the longest time, even as a young adult, as a young adult male, I remember feeling like that little boy, and it manifests itself in those two marriages that didn't work out. But feeling like that I still needed something from my mom, and it was waking up one time in therapy and realizing letting go of the need to get from mom what she was never going to be able to give me. Because who is now going to provide that need? I was. Yeah. I had to champion that little boy. Exactly. I had to be his, I had to meet his needs. Uh, and, And I had to let go of even the word maternal because whether or not, because you have family constellations that are you know, two dads or two moms or single mom, single dad. There has to be something other than maternal needs. There has to be, it's just needs. So it was letting go of this classification of needs and saying, 
Well, what is it that you do need? And does that necessarily follow that it has to come from a mom who's broken, who can't give it to you? Why do you still need her to give that to you? And it was, that was a moment in therapy where I was able to say, I free myself from the need to have my mom meet my needs. And he's like, aha, okay, That's now beautiful. who can meet him? Yeah. And I love that this is a conversation you're having with yourself. Mm-hmm. Because that, that's something that we as human beings need to do more is just understand that like there's, there's these parts of us, parts of me within that I can, that I can talk to and I can understand and I can ask like, well, okay, little man, right? That's my little guy that's in there, (laughs) you know? All right, little man, what, what is it? What is the need that you have right now? What's going on? Why, why do you want to do this so badly? Cause I don't want to do this, but I get that you little man, that's what you want to do. And the second I ask that question, clarity can happen. I can understand like, oh, it makes sense. My little man is 9, 10 years old. That's what a 9, 10 year old would want. Uh-huh. I'm not 9, 10 anymore. I'm 35. 35 year old guy wants this. 9, 10 year old, chill out, bro. I got this. Yeah. That's an, that's an awesome way to go through life because I have so many competing parts of myself that want to have those needs met because they've been there for a long, 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 long time that I have to understand those needs understand that there might even be higher needs and meet those myself rather than have old parts of me coming in or looking for someone else or something else to meet those needs because it's not it may never happen no no this is and this is this is a huge part of of a uh, treatment model treatment modality called internal family systems which is one of the most awesome very complex yet super simple models that that I use and it's just so cool to see people kind of like understand like okay this part of me was created at this period in time because of this significant trauma that part of me is going to want its needs met at that developmental age forever and I can now take that part of me pull him out or her out and say listen little part of me we got this I know you want to have your needs met a certain way, but that doesn't work for us anymore. It did at the time. It was wonderful at the time. It had to. It kept me alive. I'm in this horrific, abusive relationship or whatever, where I lost somebody, and I had to be able to do that at that time. But I don't need to do that anymore because it's not working. So now, take a step, take a step back, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take over. True self, me. I got this, and it, that's exactly what you did, man. And it's just, it's freaking awesome. The little, yeah, the little, the little, I call it the little kid, the, the, the versions of ourself. And, and usually they're a younger uh, version of ourself. But they end up becoming this psychological tail that wags the dog, the present dog. And you have to put them in check. But, well said, yeah. Yeah, so, and I, I look back at sometimes, uh, I remember one of, the, one of the, my therapy uh, efforts was to talk to the teenage version of myself who... Knew we didn't fit in, knew he was different, had the dirty secrets, and we'll get to the conflation of rigid orthodoxy and sexual control and how that really traumatized me further when you have a secret of being sexually abused and you have a church leader saying, hey, you know, sex outside of marriage is akin to murder, and you're just going, great. I'm a murderer. So tantamount murderer sitting in your midst right here. Just didn't know how to to reconcile the rigid orthodoxy. Because how old are you when that happened? 12 years old. Nobody knows about my secret. So my my very first fireside, I'm maybe two weeks into the young men's program, 
uh, and this is what happens, you know, and you get people up moralizing about sexual development and masturbation's bad. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to hell and, <laughs> and I'm a murderer. And so now my secret is just worse, you know. And, uh, and, and uh, so you have that intersection of religious orthodoxy and your dirty little secret and the inability to process it. And, and it just gets worse. Well, and at this point, now, if you didn't already feel like you didn't want to tell anybody, now you're for sure not telling anybody. Oh, hell anybody. no. Yeah. I'm going to go sit and talk to a bishop alone in a room with a man. That's a whole other separate problem we're dealing with in 2019. So but, what? So, so you grew up in this Orthodox religion. What, what made you want to go to BYU? Because that was... The plan? Well, yeah. Well, here's here's the thing. Um, and you were still involved, right? At this point, you still felt like it was this great part of your life that you wanted to pursue. The beautiful thing that I've learned through all the therapy is to give up the idea of all or nothing. Um, there are so many beautiful parts of having grown up LDS. This LDS family that adopted me, that's got to count for something. That's love. That's kindness. And what the religious orientation it has nothing to do with the fact that they acted in a way to rescue a young boy from a horrible situation that's always going to count for something in my book it doesn't make the church bad it doesn't make the doctrine good or bad per se i mean that stands alone it's its own issue they just happen to be mormon when they adopted me and that relationship that endearment i have to them will transcend anything of the orthodoxy of being Mormon. That counts for something heavily in my book. And so I have great memories. I'm endeared through the Mormon lens to these people because they, they acted in a way to care for me and love me. It was one of the first moments I ever had where I remember kneeling for the first time with them in family prayer, praying over meals, and people just being kind to each other. And you could sleep alone in your room at night and be safe. I mean, just, I was just like, what the hell is this? Like... I lived in a boundaryless world, and now suddenly there were boundaries, and there were rules, and there was structure, and that's a, that's that's hard in its own to go from the chaos of of dysfunctional disorganization to love, endearment, respect, schedules, routines, success, living in a successful environment. These people are both professors, PhDs, good people. So why were you only with them for a year and a half? Because I couldn't. I couldn't navigate the structure. And it so, so different. it was so hard. Yeah. So foreign at that age. I mean, yeah. that's all you know. I craved it initially, but I, I, I missed the freedom that I had to when I was in the dysfunction of living with my mother. Like I said, so I ended up going up to live with my father uh, for the last couple, well, yeah, 16 to 18 before I went on an LDS mission. Where was your dad living? Upstate New York. Okay. Yeah. And he was LDS too, so mm-hmm. you, yeah. you're you staying in that same environment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was beautiful. Lived up there in Rochester, about an hour from Palmyra, so I was able to go to all the LDS church sites and just really immerse myself in that. And I really, I really committed myself to becoming a better Mormon and, and, and thought, well, you know, I've had all these traumatic issues and... Uh, but they're not necessarily the church's fault. And I've had people who are members of the church that have helped me. And so I thought, I'm going to give this thing a go. And I'm going to commit myself to being a better Mormon and a better Christian. And and I did what I thought. And I believed that I would be blessed if I went and served a mission. Where did you serve your mission? Spain. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, over in Sevilla, the 
Andalusia. I was down in the whole southern part of the of the country. Gorgeous. Oh yeah, I've always wanted to go to Spain. I do too. That's really cool. It's beautiful there. So <laughs> yeah. that that I was, want to go back to Spain. Yeah. That. <laughs> so was your mission a good experience for you? It's hard. Yeah, yeah but I think that's. Yeah. Well, and it was hard. It was hard. Well, Europe is a whole nother level, man. Like you're not like baptizing people and like you're not baptizing people. It's Catholic in in Spain. So Spain is talk about fish out of water, right? Yeah. And and I was just so immature. I was so at at nineteen. That's so weird that you were immature. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm carrying all these secrets. I'm still immature. And I haven't told I haven't told anybody about the abuse. I well, would, child, childhood abuse and sexual abuse developmentally rocks the world of human beings. I mean, yeah. maturation-wise, so you're, you're going to be, because of that stuff, maturation-wise, typically, you're a little stunted. Like, your maturation level is probably not even 18 at that age. Probably no, younger, younger, no, younger. No, no. Yeah, I was... Well, and the, the other issue is um, I was lying. I just was like, I have a choice here. Yeah, I you can had be, to lie to get out. Yeah, I can be vulnerable, and, and but am I really lying because I didn't disclose sex abuse? It was just like I, I could. In your mind, you think you are. That's but the I problem. Absolutely, thought I was lying because they were like, "Well, do you have any unresolved transgressions?" So in my mind, I called my abuse a transgression, which is horrible. <laughs> I'm traumatizing myself, calling my own abuse trauma or a transgression. Yeah. But you know, I'm looking at the strict letter of the law, and, and I'm like. These guys are wanting me to give up something I just don't want to talk about. Well, so we have to take a quick detour, if that's okay. Because I want to go back to your story. Yeah. I love detours. Bethany knows. Oh, yeah. But this is is something that fundamentally has to change within organized religion. It is extremely poorly explained to children the differentiation between sexual abuse and transgression. And I love that you brought this up. But it is not explained in a way that we know works. The, the crazy thing is we know what works. You go to a therapist, they know how to parse these things out. You go to a psychologist, you psychiatry, psychology, we have figured out how to help children understand why their abuse is not their fault. However, in many organized, structured, whether that's religious or large organizations, they can't yet put their finger on how to do that. The reason why is because it is not their job. It's not. They're not trained professionals. They will never be no. able to do this. And this is something that drives me up the freaking wall because you put a child just like you in a room with a clergyman. It doesn't matter the religion. This happens amongst many different religions. Sure. But sure, it's absolutely. an adult man. Adult, adult man, even adult woman, right? The problem is they are a representative of an organization that is perpetuating an idea that the thing that they have done is not only wrong, but also their fault. Because doctrinally, that's what you teach. You do anything sexual, you have committed some sort of offense. Until we are able to let go of the idea that that is a thing for kids in sexual abuse and talk about it openly better than we are now, whether that's the Mormon religion, whether that's the Catholic religion, whether that's Protestantism, whether that's Jew- Judaism, it, it doesn't matter. This problem is going to keep happening. And it's coming to a head. I mean, it's 2019, May, May 6th, 2019. Mm-hmm. Right now, in the news, just like last week, we heard about a institutionalized form of deception that is happening that I don't think some people know about. 
within the Mormon religion, right, when, when a child talks to the clergyman, the bishop, about their sexual abuse, the sexual abuse is then reported to a hotline. <laughs> you mean it's, the Asset Protection Department? Yes. Let's call it what it is. The hotline on yeah. the other side of the phone is some attorneys. Mm-hmm. And they are going to mitigate the risk factor and instruct that bishop on what to do. Mm-hmm. This is a fundamental violation of that child's human rights, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and the problem is, how... how Instead can, of being reported to it, police, to someone like that... There are proper channels is, within the government yes. that it should go to. And we are Social deliberately, services, systematically something. bypassing that process for what? It is definitely not in the interest of the child. And... and I don't typically come out publicly in stance against something, especially within the within the Mormon Church or any other any other church. But this is this is a big deal. It's this a huge deal. That needs to be more talked about and needs to change. If if something because if that system was in place, sorry, if that system was in place fine. differently, you and we created a safe environment where you could tell somebody your abuse probably could have stopped. This abuse, we could stop some of the abuse that's going on, but the system itself actually keeps it going. Well, and the system, that's the problem. The system is bigger than the child. The system is made to be bigger than the child. The system counts for more than the child. And that's why I rather sarcastically called it the Asset Protection Department. But that's exactly what they're doing. It's risk assessment. What is the fallout if we report this? What is the fallout if we act? There should be no if. There should be no phone call to the legal department. That's what they're doing. It should be to the police department of the lo- the local police department that would have jurisdiction over that yes. crime. And you, that you alleged know, crime. You're, you're a police officer. You yeah. know the system that's in place. That's part of what you yeah. do as as your profession. Yeah. You're trained. You're paid. That's the system that we all as a society have agreed upon to follow through on. Mm-hmm. And for an outside organization to come in and bypass that system that we as a society have agreed on, it's wrong. It, it just is. And, and I don't want the, you know, the podcast to be like anti-anything. Yeah. That's, not, that's not what this is about. We're not anti-organization. No, we're, we're not anti-Mormon. We're no, not anti- no, 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 no. I hope people don't take that this way, but I just know we have a large audience of people who might not be aware of stuff like this that's going on. And this, doesn't, this isn't like a, oh, revolt, everybody exit whatever church you're a part of. That's not, that's not, that, that's not what this is about. This is about understanding that if we can have a voice, we can change the way things work. No, and I, exactly. I'm not a fan of baby with the bathwater. If we can, a religion doesn't have to be demonized or made to disappear simply because it's got bad practices. Let's change the bad practices. Yes. Exactly. And, and it, people don't lose their value just because no. they have bad habits. No. They need to change those habits. And so I would apply it at a, at a macro level to just say well, so. uh, uh, religions uh, of whatever ilk. <laughs> Change the way you do things and stop behaving ostensibly, well, not ostensibly, stop behaving obviously in a way that is simply to protect your assets. It's gross. It's, it's upsetting and it's disgusting when, when it's very clear to any rational human being, they know exactly what you're doing. You're trying to circle the coffers. You're trying to protect your assets and you're doing so on the souls and the innocence of children. And it's upsetting. It angers me. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, sorry for the detour. I just no. felt like that, detour, it, it detour came, done. Came up, and I think it was a good um, <laughs> thing to address. Anyways, yeah. back to the Andrews story. 
So how? So we've got to. How old are you now? Fifteen. Sixteen. Oh, you, so no, my okay, teens. You're back what? with dad. You go on a Mormon mission. Yeah. Spain. Uh-huh. Come mm. home. And I go back to that family that adopted me after the mission. Yeah. Nice. Because this is when uh, allegations start to circulate about my sister's abuse and the perpetrator. And I'll say it just like that. I don't want to get into who. Thank you. Yeah. But uh, so I'm like, I'm going to go back and live with my family, you know, that before my the mission. The place you were safe. Yeah. Uh, and I went back there and it was wonderful. And I lived with them for a year and a half, but I could feel my life just starting to fall apart. My life really starts to fall apart at that point. Um, I'm obviously a 22-year-old return missionary full of my own virility and I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have any sexual outlet. I don't have any social um, connections. And there's not a whole lot there in Pennsylvania at that time. And I'm just like, I want to be around like-minded others. I want to be around my peers. I want to start dating. I want to start figuring out what the next phase of my life is. And I could just see that I wasn't going anywhere in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So I remember saying, I'm going to Utah. I packed everything I owned in two suitcases, bought a one-way ticket on a Greyhound bus and rode all the way across the country. Got dropped off in downtown Salt Lake, right below Temple Square. No job, no contact, nothing. Went right to, I think it was Temple Square, and just said, I need help. I'm here. I stayed in a hotel for seven days, found a job. I started making my life happen. It was awesome. Walked away from it all. So what? Oh, that's amazing. Right. <laughs> I can't that's even the imagine. Yeah. I can't yeah. imagine doing that as an mm. ad, like being older. I, that's you're still kind of young at this point in my mind. I have a 19 year old, and I'm thinking, oh, there's no way that you have a 19 year old. Yeah. I can't imagine that. <laughs> and I like the thought. You look 19. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but I remember dropping him off at school and thinking. We're helping him still, and can he do this? So the thought of like him going across the country and being like, peace out, no way. So what made you, how'd you get into BYU? That's a long story. I mean, that, that doesn't happen for another, so that's 1990. I don't... So you're just working, surviving, trying to live in Utah, uh-huh. trying to be a part of so, the community. Yeah, so all I'm doing at this point is I just want to put myself in the milieu, the social milieu. I want to be around other Mormons. I want to be around... I mean, that's... Yeah, we're in Utah. You're that's my go-to group, yeah. and it's what I know. I, I had great experiences in the youth program growing up. I mean, I talk, we, we talked about my childhood and my, my teenage developmental years being hard, but I still had my safe place was going to church, believe it or not, even though sometimes the rhetoric or the fire starts would be harmful. Overall, it was a really positive experience. It was I had leaders that were wonderful, that were paternal and maternal surrogates that really wielded such a powerful influence in my life and kept me kept me alive, kept me afloat. Uh, and I did glean from all that um, things that I wanted, values that I thought were important. And so I thought, well, I want to be out and be around it. And so no better place to come than the Mecca of Mormon young adults than BYU Provo, right? For sure. So And Salt Lake City. So I came here and I just was like, I've got to go find me a job. I'm going to need people's help. I just, just, I said, I'm going. And I got on the bus and I just had, it was scary. I remember getting out the bus going, I don't know anybody. I don't know where I'm going to go tonight. And I remember calling a mission companion and 
he had a room and he's like, uh, yeah, you can come stay with us. And I ended up getting a job. And, and so I lived there and then I moved down to Provo. And, and I remember it took me two years before, but, and this is where the story starts to get cool. This is where, this is where I just started to really have really neat things happen. But, um, I think it's 1992, summer 1992. So I'm here two and a half years and all I've done is work and had a lot of fun, but I'm like, I want to go to school. Like if I'm going to do anything in life, if I'm going to be successful, I've got to get at least a, a, a college education of some kind. But there's mom, you dumb, stupid kid. Her voice just sits back just, and just nags. Well, it emerges. Because mm. now I'm flirting with the idea of going to school, and then it's... And then mom shows up. And mom shows up, and there she is. Shame. But you're dumb, you're stupid, you can't do this. And so now I've got, now I've got to figure out how to get to school process and I, at this point I'm not going to counseling um, I'm not getting any help for what are clearly demons that are vocal and living in my head on a daily basis so I end up and this is this is a cool part of the story I, to this day I don't know who these people are but I remember being really vocal about wanting to go to school and I thought I'm going to school and I thought I don't care what it takes, what classes I have to take, what, how long, how hard I have to work to, to get to that level of proficiency for college performance, but I'm going to do it. Um, and I remember just, I was just vocal with my peers and my friends about how I wanted to go to school and I was saving and I was just like, I don't know how this is going to work. And I remember getting student loan applications and I, I got all that done, did it all myself. So I've always been driven that way. Like, I'm just going to go start acting and moving in the direction of my perceived goal. And uh, and I got a check in the mail in late July of 1992 for the total tuition and books and fees of everything for the first semester at UVU or UVSC at that time, I think. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I paid for everything, and I was blown away. And so here I was working 30 hours a week. Who, you don't know who sent you that check? To this day, I don't. Wow. They sent me another one in December for 1200 to cover... People are Spring good, semester, people are good. People are good. The universe, well, that. no, that's why I do some of the things that I do now, giving back. But I ended up 4 owing the first two semesters of my college experience and ended up getting, a, it's called a dean's discretionary tuition waiver or like a scholarship. And then I ended up on full ride the rest of my college because... I found out I wasn't dumb. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> mom was wrong again, huh? Yeah, mom was wrong. I, I remember all the countless nights of sleeping and or not sleeping, and I would read all that. I would just be studying books. One semester, one summer, I bought all of my books before school started and read them, underlined them, outlined them. I just did everything I could to make sure that I was going to be successful, and I just walked into those classrooms like, I'm going to take your scholarships. You can't beat me. And it was fun. It was me versus the world. It was really cool. (laughs) So you you graduated. So I graduated UVU with an associate and had already applied to BYU, and they offered me a full ride there to finish up my bachelor's. So I just changed other sides of the town. There you go. And you got a degree in psychology. Uh Nice. A bachelor of science with an emphasis in psychology. And I really, really focused on um, the science part of it, how to read abstracts, professional periodicals. I really, really liked reading uh, abs- or research. Research, yeah. And, and trying to understand the data and draw my own conclusions. Uh, but that taught me how to think critically and rationally. 
you have to. Uh, mm-hmm. And my, uh, and I'm just going to give him credit because to the, to this day, I mean, I just took a picture with him last year, but Dr. Brent's life was arguably the most influential academician I ever had. And he taught me how to think critically. He taught me how to challenge every assumption out there in a philosophy or theoretical paradigm. What are the underlying assumptions? Can they be argued? Can they be bolstered? Can they be challenged? And once I applied that epistemology to religion, and we'll get to that, I was able to really peel back the layers, see the wizard, and see things for what they are. I feel like that is such an important thing. I mean, aside from even just college and education and even maybe your religious experience, just being able to think critically about everything in life and really being able to, instead of just taking everything at face value, I think that's important in relationships. I just, yeah. I feel like it's, it, it creates deep understanding, meaningful relationships and a meaningful life where if everything is so surface and I want to dig too deep and I don't want to know too much, like that's, that seems so... You bring superficial a, and worthless to me. You make a you bring up a really good point because I never would have thought this, but my marriage with Ashley is everything. Um, pardon me. Oh. Can you cry on radio? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we do it every day. <laughs> but it. You know, talking about psychology, the versions of yourself. So many times in our marriage, I have feelings, and I, I can feel this immature or younger version of myself just being unnecessarily intrusive in some sort of transaction psychologically. And it's the critical thinking. It's the, well, is that necessarily true? And I'm, I'm talking to this phantom self that's just, wielding this emotional sword. It, it's screaming for some sort of attention. Something in the present dynamic is eliciting the awareness of this version of myself. And I just have to go, can you give me a second, sweetheart? And, just, and I'll just go, what do you need? Hey, buddy, I got this. You say, little man. I say, hey, buddy, mm-hmm. I, I got this. You're going to be okay. And my wife will go, what's going on? And I'll just say, all this, and I'll explain the situation. She goes, you good? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. We, we've done this dance forever. So she gets it. But, uh, boy, just what you were saying there, just, yeah, you would think that all I do is read periodicals and just want to be a research junkie. I've actually just, I've adapted it to my relationship at Ashley. I don't take a lot of counsel from my feelings. I simply use those to, to become aware uh, feelings are not always necessarily very volatile. revealing the truth. Feelings are just feelings, but they're not necessarily revealing truth. <laughs> Sometimes they're revealing a lie. So, and you have to you have to honor the presence of those feelings and go. Well, what's this all about? What am I supposed to learn here? Yeah. How do I grow from this? My feelings are informing me of mm-hmm. something. What is it? Yeah. Truth, lies, myself, someone else. This is information. I get to decide what I do with the information. Mm-hmm. My emotions don't get to dictate how I move. Heuristics. Think. Yeah. Re- the way we reframe it. And so that's the other thing that's been powerful in all my counseling and, and just working is learning how to reframe a thing. Or, you know, to use the Viktor Frankl idea of logotherapy, and that is to attach new meanings or to give your, give your suffering purpose, to give your pain purpose. That's what he did with Holocaust survivors. Powerful. I love him. I yeah. love him. That's... 
That's one of the greatest books I've ever read in my life. Yeah. Man's Search for Meaning. If you haven't read it, Victor Frankl changed your yep, life. Read it once, read it twice, keep reading it because yeah. it's so powerful. Yeah. 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 That book and M. Scott Peck's People of the Lie, People of the Lie. Uh, really, really, really changed me. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. Beautiful. So, graduate BYU, flying colors. When do you join? Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, I joined. Well, I joined the FOP is just a. No, I joined the police. To, I, police I joined. Department. I signed up for law enforcement in the Corrections Academy uh, in go. 1999. 99. Yeah. So 20 years ago this October. Wow. I'm in my retirement years. They say. Dang man, that's amazing. <laughs> but I'm not going to retire. So why? So you graduate, got all these things going for you. Why did you choose police officer, first responder? That's a great question. I mean. Uh, to use the Jungian uh, terminology, I, I think I'm working out an archetype of sorts, <laughs> justice complex. Uh, Want to get the bad guy, and I think, I think if I'm being really honest and being present and aware, I think that's what it is. You know, I was telling my wife, you know, I've got. She's like, you could have gone on and got a PhD. Why did you just stop with the, you know? And I'm like, because I wanted to make money. I mean, it really became that pragmatic. And, and we were impoverished, just so you know, growing up, we were always on state assistance and welfare. It was just bad. It's bad, bad, bad. We were, I remember one time we were all sleeping in a hotel in the same bed. It was horrible. I mean, it was just, I, so I grew up impoverished, and so I just wanted to make money. I wanted my own, I was making my own kingdom. Now I'd proven that I'm not dumb, that I actually have head on my shoulders, and I was really into not stop. I wanted to keep learning just because I graduated. I was like, I... I have a library at home you wouldn't believe it. I mean, fill this room. I just read, 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 read. Because um, I, I, I became addicted to learning and wanting to educate myself. And the more you read, the, the less you know. That's what I've discovered. <laughs> so true. So, there's the so less much I know. And I'm humbled. Yeah, the universe just gets bigger the more you realize. Yeah. And the more you realize your place in it and your, mm-hmm. and I, I am in awe of people. I am in awe of academic minds, and I'm just like, I've cut this little piece out of the universe for myself that I call my life and my home, and I've, I've got my wife and my kids. But So it's, yeah, 1999, I'm getting ready to go into the police academy, and, and there's other dynamics starting to manifest themselves now. It's the, the peer dynamic starting to manifest itself, what it means to be masculine, what it means to be tough. You know, things I hadn't really explored before. I've got some bullying issues that I really had never resolved, and cops tend to be a bully magnet. So I started working through some of that stuff, but that's about the time. Um, let's see, 1999, I'm going through my second divorce in a year after I get on, and then I... Uh, so you've been married, divorced, want- married all within a year? I married and divorced within one year from 1995 to 1996. Okay. Meet my second wife in the winter of 1996, and we're getting married in the fall or spring of 1997, and we're together for three years. Um, Do you have any kids? No, with neither. And that's so that was nice. They were just really expensive breakups, you know? So. Yeah. <laughs> so, Two in a row. No not shared not assets and no shared, and no kids, and so. I mean, I'm grateful. I mean, I look back yeah. then, now, there's just really expensive breakups. And, you know, if we're being honest, uh, you know, we got married just because that was the only way you could have sex, right? 100%. And so, 
There's a lot more cost-efficient ways to do that these days, <laughs> I've discovered. But <laughs> but I'm sure you learned a lot from those two marriages. Oh, without question. About no, you, if you, about life, about what you wanted. I can't tell my story without those first two. I'm not ashamed of those. Those are yeah. just part of my history. Mm-hmm. Of course. I learned from them. I would, go, I would hug both of those women today and thank them for what they taught me. I would tell them that I would probably cry and I'd apologize for the fact that I didn't know any better than to not participate in that marriage. I wasn't healthy, but I didn't know it. You, you can't know what you don't know. Um, and it was, it was the marriage, it was the attempt and, and it failing and trying to make sense that that really taught me about abandonment. That's when I really went after abandonment. When you get married and then divorced, if you have an abandonment issue, you you do one of two things. You don't deal with it or you deal with it. And I'll, and this is this is the watershed moment in my career. And this is perfect time to tell this little story. But so I hire a therapist. Now I speak the I speak the the language of therapy, have a degree in it. And I knew when I was going to school that the biggest reason I wanted to get a degree in counseling was because I wanted to hire a therapist to help me heal. That's the only reason. I wasn't really looking for a counseling degree to get a job, when per se. When you're going through school, I just... Actually, Corey is the one that mentioned this last week, but when you're going through school for therapy or in psychology of any sort, part of it is you have to have therapy, right? Not necessarily, but I did. I, I took just it, remember Corey saying for him he you, had to go. You may well if you're doing clinical psychology, I would imagine at your graduate level you would have you would have to start doing something. But it, it seemed incumbent upon me as a student to go ahead and and do it. So I I took advantage of the free counseling offered to students at BYU and UVU. Doctor Benyon, I will forever be grateful for her. She was my counselor through um, my divorces, and she was wonderful. She's the one that opened up the whole world to me of of what it means to do counseling and to do work. Mm-hmm. And let's be very clear. Counseling is work if you do it right. It's a grind. It's going into the dark. It's going into the nasty, yucky places. It's confronting yourself. And it's hurting. It's feeling alone. It's feeling dark and depressing. Just learning how to live with that, mm-hmm. but knowing it's not permanent. Right. Knowing it's tools not permanent. to dig yourself out. Yeah. Yeah. So... I'm sitting in this counseling session. This is the watershed moment of all my counseling. It's the story I love to tell the most. This is where the trajectory of my life changes. I'm in there just railing. Those bitches and those blah. I'm just screaming and yelling and pain and angst. And he's just looking at me. You know, kind of like Carl Rogers, the mm -hmm, unconditional positive regard, the yep, tell me more. And I'm just, I'm wailing. You know, and, and I'm the victim, of course. You know, it's the little version of me yelling at mom, really. That's what it is. These women have just turned into my mom. I just don't know it. And he goes, Mr. Fagan, I can take your money. We can do counseling. You can come in here every week, and you can rail on these women and what they did. They acted in ways that hurt you. I get it. I'm not really interested in what they did to you. I'm more interested in the man who would let a woman treat him like that. So we can talk about that guy or we can talk about them, but they're not here. Watershed moment. And that's when I went, oh, I'm broken, huh? And he goes, yeah, kind of. But we can put you back together. Actually, you're going to put you back together. I'm just going to facilitate it. You have to do the work. You have to get better. And I went, yeah, I don't really want to get divorced again. I want to know what it means to love. 
I want to know what it means to raise kids that are safe. I can't get back my childhood, but I'll be damn sure I give a good one to the kids I have. That's what happened. One session. That's how it works, man. <laughs> it's just the right question. And, and you could just, you could ask it to yourself. You have somebody else ask it to you, but that's the power of questions. That's what changes us. Mm-hmm. It's this innate ability we have to ask ourselves the right thing that allows for a brief opening where something new some new idea, some new belief system, something that you've never thought of before enters. And it's all from a question. Hmm. You're never going to learn anything unless you ask. And that's what he did. He asked, and then you asked yourself, and you're like, yeah, you're right. See, the ugliest, thing, the ugliest thing at my point, the ugliest thing in my life to that point was what these people had did to me, in my mind. And what that therapist pointed out was, no, what's ugly is that you think it's okay for people to treat you like that. And why does that sound familiar? Why, why should it not surprise you that that's what you do? Oh, because your mom treated you like that. Here's the difference between a little boy whose mom treats him like that and an adult man. You didn't really have a choice in the mistreatment your mother gave you. So that was one of the first things we sorted out in therapy was, this is different. You didn't have a choice as a kid. You do now. And guess what? This version of you is going to take care of that little kid. He's going to say, hey, dude, we don't have to go through that anymore. We're not going to go through that anymore. I got you. I got you. Beautiful thing. Man. I love thing. The, like how you, how you said, um, like how your therapist said, I don't want to talk about these other women. You can rail on whoever you want. I won't talk about that. I want to talk about you. I love that because I feel like so many of us sit and, well, this person made me feel like this and this person made me and this person did this to me and, or, you know, curse God or curse somebody else, right? When the reality is all you can control is you. Yeah, people don't make you feel anything. No. That's you. So I, I always take issue when people say, well, he's making me, really? And it's so funny because my five-year-old says it all the time, right? <laughs> like, you, you're making me mad. And I'm like, no, you're doing that. But it's it's funny because we still do it as adults. We right? still do that. And it's like, but the reality is if you're talking to your kid, you're like, no one makes you sad. No one makes you angry. You choose that. Mm-hmm. So why the hell can't we do that in our own brain sometimes? And here's the flip. And here's the powerful part of being aware of that. There may actually be people that are trying to make you feel a certain way, like my mother. And I can go, yeah. Here's the thing. I don't have to believe what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I don't have to participate in your abuse of me. So you can say that. You can be mean. You can try and hurt me with words, but they only hurt to the extent that I believe them. And see, when I finally got to college, I went, I'm not dumb. I don't have to believe that anymore. I'm not sure what I am, but I'm not dumb. I just happened to do really well at proving that I wasn't dumb which is cool. But had I been an average student, I still would have not been dumb, which would have been progress of a kind. So while you're in therapy, you're in the police academy, right? I hadn't really started digging that deep. I I was doing some. It was spotty. I hadn't found the right fit. You know, that's so so critical. And we'll get to my therapist for the last 15 years because he's amazing. Um, But so at this point, I had a therapist and and he worked for a while, but uh, it just wasn't a good fit long term. Uh, and I was, you know, I just wasn't 
willing to participate and invest in my own healing at that point on a regular basis. Um, but I was starting to go, and the thing is, is every time, and you'll see this sometimes in counseling, once you start getting to the, the meaty, nasty, uh, part, people tend to bail. They don't, they yep. want to, they don't want to stay in the game. They don't want to go where the heart, they don't, they don't want to go into the dark and they're with him. Uh, that's what happened. Like he gave me that moment and then I didn't want to go into the dark. It wasn't until I, uh, I got married to Ashley and that first year that I met Dr. Potts. Yeah. It, it's unfortunate that people's kind of mindset is I need the right motivation for me to want to do this, which is completely external. Yeah. And that's the majority of people, honestly, that I interact with are like, well, you know, I got to make sure that things are right for me. Make them right for you. Well, Two Failed Marriages has a wonderful way of saying, hey, you're the common denominator in Two Failed Marriages. So you can either blame the universe or you can go... I'm the common denominator. Well, and and the the you know the chemistry has to be right. It has to be this whatever the soil has to be fertile enough for you to want to grow, right? Right. And I, and I think that definitely happens. Our environments create catalyst for change in all of us. My point is though, you you can make your own soil as fertile as you want it. You don't need to wait for the right time. Like do it like tomorrow, now, this moment you can make the change that you need to make in your life. You have that capability. If you feel like you need to wait on something to change, ask yourself a question. Why is something else the thing that's going to change me? Why can't I be that thing? It's like maybe a psych- I am. Yeah. It's like a psychological casino. You're just going to go gamble. You know, well, maybe I'll get lucky. Maybe I won't. Yeah. What is that? That's not you being in charge. Right. That's not you taking control. So I, you know, I get through these two failed marriages and I go, I don't ever want to do that again. I need to get me right. And I believe this to the day. And it's just a phrase my wife and I use now, but I was only going to attract the level of health that I was. That was my own personal observation. Crazy begets crazy. Birds of a feather do flock. (laughs) Um, And, and. I was only going to attract the level of nuttiness that I was. And I said, I don't want to be nutty anymore. And wouldn't you know it? I stayed single for four years, was really aggressive in counseling, um, and got to a point where I was like, oh, I don't need somebody in my life. When I got to that moment where I could go home alone after being out dancing or dating or whatever and, and just go home alone to my apartment and not be like feeling alone and dark, but like, oh, that was a good night. That was, a, that was a good moment in my life. That was a good moment. And I was like, oh, so you would choose to be with a woman versus needing her because she's meeting some unmet need that you haven't told her about. That's not healthy. That's not good. Now I was healthy. And Ashley is the polar opposite of the, of the, the type of person I would have dated prior to that, that epiphany. That's right. And you guys been married how long now? 15 years, 17 together. I met her the first, oh, I'd, I had known her, seen her on the dance floor, and always thought she was really beautiful. She can dance, and that's attractive to me, <laughs> and because uh, I can dance too. But uh, I remember just introducing myself that first night, and I kissed her the first night I met her, and that was it. That, that was, it was over. I mean, and she'll, she'll tell you, I mean, I don't want to tell her story sometime. It'd be fun to hear it, but yeah, it was good. And it was chemistry, and it's still chemistry, 17 years later. It's, 
I look back, I'm like so grateful those marriages didn't last because what I have now is transcendent. That is the word. And our marriage is getting better and better all the time. I was going to say, do you still feel some of those old thoughts, habits creeping back in? Is that something that you, it's the a, dysfunction? a work? The dysfunctional? Like, yeah, maybe. Or just, mm. just, the, just, I feel like sometimes. Sure. Well, it's and, like and a constant the, work. It's a constant. I have to continually keep, you know, stay in therapy or do these acts. So that way I don't creep back into that old habit. Well, I knew that having kids was necessarily going to require me to be in counseling because I knew that what was going to happen was I was going to be... See, here's the thing, growing up the way I did, you grow up and you go, I know what not to do. I know what I'm not going to do. The problem is, is that still doesn't answer the question of what are you going to do? So I was like parenting from the hip. And really, a lot of us as parents, we are parenting from the hip. There isn't a book. Mm -hmm. But I think there are some some good ground rules for being a parent. So keeping this marriage relationship healthy while we've, we're introducing these little babies into our dynamic is a, is a, a, you know, that's a gargantuan task. And so for me, what I didn't want to do was take any unresolved angst or trauma from my childhood and have it start manifesting itself in my role as a father I don't want my kids to go through this. I don't want my kids to go through that and have that be driving the dynamic of my interaction with my kids. And so I, I thought I'm going to just go use what I call prophylactic psychology. I'm just going to go do counseling and talk about what it's like to be a father and what it, what's happening and just say, I need some skill set here. So, so much of my counseling now is we're way past the boohoo phase of counseling, I call it, where I had to process the angst and the pain. We're not. I'm not in that anymore. Now everything I do in counseling is... I want to be a better husband and father, absent any dysfunctional behavior. There's nothing really dysfunctional. I'm in a place now where I'm maintaining my marriage by staying ahead of any potential problems. So I think that's super important to hear, for people to hear, is that I think sometimes we assume, and myself included, that we need counseling to get through the rough stuff, Mm -hmm. right? To get past our childhood trauma, to get past this trauma in our life. But there is a purpose for it just to keep life happy and healthy, just to stay on top of things, right? Having a skill set. Yeah. And well, and we're going to maybe get to this, but I, I didn't know how my job was going to start affecting me. So that's a whole other dynamic is the trauma of some of the stuff I've seen and dealt with in my job that has nothing to do with my child. It has nothing to do with child sex abuse, has nothing to do with any of that. It just is a trauma all its own. And bam, there it is. Now it's part of my marriage, thank, and thank God I'm at this point where I'm healthy. But it's it's a new type of trauma that I'm going to have to start learning to deal with. The day-to-day grind of what I do for a living finds its way into my home. Because you're going to see stuff on the job yeah. that reminds you directly of your childhood experience mm-hmm. daily. Yep. The cool part about that, though, is I'm able to go, yeah, that looks similar. But there's not an affective component because to that observation. Because you've done the work. Yeah. Because there's you've nothing done the affective. Exactly. Nothing. Right. Well, I would say that's something first responders deal with a lot, right? Well, it's even if you've never had that trauma as a child, mm. you're to see childhood trauma in other people, that's going to mess anybody up. Well, you if have you're your not working own. On it. You, yeah, exactly. You have your own childhood experience. And abandonment 
to you and you might not be what abandonment is to me, but I've still experienced abandonment, maybe Mm -hmm. on a different scale. And so I see a kid who's being abandoned, it's going to prickle stuff. And if I don't know how to recognize my stuff coming up, I'm going to take on his stuff too. And then it's extremely difficult for me to manage. And so then I go home and then I do whatever I need to do to numb and avoid and and maladaptively cope with the pain and experience that I'm going through. Mm-hmm. As a therapist, it's the same thing. I mean, I'm yeah. dealing with people and all their shit comes up and I have to be like, okay, that's theirs. This is mine. I can do mine. and let them sit with theirs. Same thing for first responders. Same thing for hairdressers. Same things for bartenders. I mean, all these people, it doesn't matter what it is. If you're in a profession in which you interact with other people and you're a helping person, nurses, attorneys, I mean, there's so many professions. That's how it goes. So you've been actively, and I'll use this word on purpose, very deliberately, practicing what you learn, and that has, th- has been the thing that's kept you sane, if you will. I mean, yeah. if that's a word mm-hmm. to use when you're a police officer. I don't know if any police officer is actually really sane. <laughs> it's, uh, it's open for debate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't really be completely sane and do what you do every day and want to no. keep doing it. I mean, there has to be some level of... of Insanity there. No, I'm just kidding. No, and I, I, want, I want to be real clear. I work in corrections, so I'm a, a sergeant in sorry, corrections. Yeah. So I work with prisoners, mm-hmm. um, though, though I'm certified in all areas of law enforcement in Utah. But I've chosen to remain in corrections. Uh, but, yeah, the stuff I see in corrections, uh, some of it's, it would bend your brain. It would, uh, you know, it would, uh, it would mess with some people and, and I try not to bring that home but my wife works in in pediatrics so she she has some sense of some of the war stories out there she's she's a good woman that way I can talk to her about work but getting back to maintenance and deliberately working to protect I mean I've gone to a lot of training in law enforcement with PTSD survivors and what it means to be in the job and how it affects us and the long-term effects the longitudinal effect of uh I've seen that type of thing, and I'm I'm aware that that can happen. And so, for me, one of the, one of my mantras is a police being an officer uh, is what I do to pay the bills. It's not my identity. My role as a father and husband is my identity. That's who I am. Uh, what I do to pay the bills is what I do to pay the bills. It's not my identity. When I'm done being a cop, I'm done being a cop. I'm going to be a dad and a husband for a long time after that. And so that helps me parse that out and say, this is how you pay bills. I don't mean that to sound denigrating. I mean, it's noble. I love what I do, but it's just a way to pay bills. But it doesn't define you. My energy is spent in building my relationship with my children, not in, not imposing my dysfunctional past upon them such that their childhood is skewed negatively because I haven't resolved some issue in my childhood. That's just not at play. Um, And, you know, it'd be nice to have Ashley, pipe in on that because she could tell you what she sees it and I but I'm pretty certain that I'm not bringing that into how I raise my kids they're free to be who they are I'm here to be their support I'm there to be a parent that's right um and I'm there to give them the best you know and I just a big believer that the best thing I can do for my kids is to love my wife that's the best thing I can do and they can just grow and marinate in that love and they'll be good not worried about that. That's cool, man. I love that. Okay, and I love what you just said about my kids are free to be who they are. Yeah. Like you're parenting, you're trying to guide them so they can be safe and healthy. But I love that. And I think a lot of times 
we try to impose on that as parents. Well, we're taught to. Yeah. It, at least in my religious history has taught me that I need to teach my kids, that we need to be a forever family. And, uh, you know, for some people that's important. They, and they need to do this, this, yeah. this, and this. And that's how you have a healthy life and healthy relationships. And that's not really true. Like, I've watched my own kids. I have six kids, and I've watched them all. They're so different. Yeah. And they're still young. And so I think as they get older, they're going to be so different. And I... I want them to be different. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's just it. And then, so the interesting, fun part for us right now is that we, my wife and I, were both raised uh, LDS, and now we're moving away from from that, and we're we're left. You know, sometimes we're like, well, how are we going to raise them? And and we've really just come to this place where we're just going to love them. We'll let them ask the questions. We'll let them walk into their own existential crisis. And they can have those at, you know, their teenage years and their later young adult life. Um, I'm just here to help them consider the possibilities. But to to tell them they should believe this or that I know and there's this, I, I'm not going to... But can't. that's hard. Don't you feel like that's hard? It is hard because... Because it's hard when you've been taught a certain way and your brain's this... It is if you feel like you're failing and that you buy into the shame complex that comes attached with not raising your kids the right way. And I'm like, well, well would you please show me what the right way is? Yeah. Because I believe the right way is to love. And I can love absent of belief in any deity. I don't have to have deity to love. I don't. Oh, I love, I, yeah. Thank you. Oh, yeah. my gosh. That's awesome, man. Dude, you're a stud. <laughs> I, I seriously so, so. feel like this is why I do this. I... It was right? interesting. Last night, Kevin and I were on a walk, and we were talking about a lot of things. Anyways, I seriously was like, well, doing the podcast is my therapy. Like, I feel listening to your stories, listening to how you deal with things, listening to how you continually work on things is amazing and so motivational for me. Like, it starts to make me think, okay, well, yeah, I like that, and I want to do that. And I want to work on that. I'll do therapy and the rest of my life. I love that. Yeah, I will. And I write. Write. What I do now is I write. And so you obviously saw one of my pieces. I do mm-hmm. a ton. I've probably got mm-hmm. 200 pieces like that that I've written. A lot of them are what it's like to be a dad now and celebrating the joy of fatherhood and, and working through it. Just, some of them are just really poignant. There's a lot of pathos. Some of them are just the birth of my third son in the van. Telling that story just makes people laugh anyhow. That's awesome. You should send me one, and I'll post it for our uh, our follower sure. people. Yeah, yeah really just whatever you want to share. Any piece at all? Do you, yeah. yeah. One, one you want to share that you feel like you want to open up I to I think you audience. read Bending But Not Breaking. Is yeah. that the one you read? Yeah, that yeah. that's a little heavy. You'd have to put trigger warnings on that. I'm learning that I need to that's do fine. that. <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> I should put trigger warnings on things. That's that was, that was, I read that, and I was like, I'm sitting, I can't remember where I was. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Anyways, I'm sitting there, and I'm reading this, and I'm going like, oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh, I freaking love this guy. Who is this person? I need to know him. Oh, and I'm just like reading. I'm like, oh, he gets it. Yes. And it was just so cool. And then I'm and then you're like, I'm a police officer. And it's like, oh, it's my people. Yeah. So, so I reached out and I'm glad it worked out, man. Yeah. I'll send you one of more and more uh humorous anecdotes. Cool. Love that it. just portray life in our home. I mean, life is good. I got a beautiful wife, a good life. I'm I'm blessed. But I but I can say that because of where I've come from. It just makes it richer. It just makes it better. That perspective. You yeah. can't beat that, man. I went from the chaos of my childhood to giving that to four kids that I made with this woman. Yeah, that's cool. 
That's, that's really that cool. His life. You know, that I can't. Is what I can't. We're here to do. I can't go back and get my childhood. Like I said, I'll be damn sure that they have a good one. Well, and it gives meaning. I can control that. It gives meaning and purpose to all the shit you've been through. Yeah. Because now it serves as this information, this catalyst for you to be the man that you are, and be the father that you are, the husband that you are. If you hadn't been through all that stuff, you wouldn't be you. And as we accept no. ourselves, no. all of my past now has purpose. And I don't need to ex- extinguish any of it. I don't need to forget about some of it and say, I like this, I don't like this. And the stuff I don't like, that actually limits me because that's a part of me. What's interesting is when I tell the story, it's, it's funny you say that. Uh, when I tell the story now, I can talk about the sexual abuse or the physical abuse and not really get emotional. I'm just, I, it's so matter of fact, like, like I said, the affective component of healing I've dealt with. And so it doesn't, it doesn't insert itself into the present context. It's just, I'm like, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Like, oh, yeah, I, I wore a blue shirt yesterday. Yeah, that's what I did. And, and, and people are like, but, but my, my point yeah. is, people will hear that. And you'll see people that have, they're like, your mom did what? <laughs> you know? Exactly. And they're, like, and they're like looking at you like, how are you functioning? And I'm like, because I didn't want to be what she said I was. Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to end up proving her right. Like I said, I'm, I love making liars out of people. That's fun. I love it. Yeah, I really well, love when someone says, "How are you functioning?" It's like, well, yeah, look what I. How are you not? Yeah, How are you struggling? <laughs> yeah, that's so good. Yeah, so good. But here's the thing that I love about my story now is, and this is why I'm so grateful to be on this this podcast, is I've had several people come to me and say. You need to tell your story. Like, people need to hear this. And so I'll ask them, well, why, why do people need to hear this? Um, and, like, because it's powerful. Uh, and I've gotten to this place now where I wonder how many people, even in the audience today, or, you know, or the, you know, when they finally listen to this, will take heart from what I have to say. The sad, the sad truth of it is my story is not unique. I wish the hell it were. But it's not. I think what is unique is how I've come through it. I think that is different. I think it is unique. I don't think it's statistically what you would see. Uh, in fact, I know that's the case. But I have a duty to help people come out of the shadows of their own abuse. And I think there's people stuck. I think there's people that don't know how to get out of that. And I just want to go, God, you can do this. You, you have no idea how powerful you are. And whatever voices are telling you you can't, whatever events have happened that make you believe that you're not worth it, you have got to get rid of that lie. You have got to let it go. And if there's something I can say or do that just makes is the catalyst in making you jump from thought to act, then let's do it. Get me on any show. Let me tell my story. If that'll help somebody. And I'm not looking for anything. I'm just looking. I just want to see people smile. I just want to see people make liars out of the doubters and the abusers in their life. That's all. Couldn't have said it better myself. Gosh. You have no idea how powerful you are. <laughs> I've heard that word a I, lot the past I, week. Like to give people hope, to let people see that, like, like you said, I'm so blessed, such a great life. That is available to everybody. Well, and I've, I've said this to my wife. Thank you. Uh, and I said this to my good friend, Christy Johnson. Love her. But I said, you have no idea how hard I've worked just to be normal. Just to be normal. You look at my family and you look at me, and then, 
unless you know my story, I just I just look look like your cookie cutter family here in Utah. You could assume a lot by looking at that picture about who I am and where I've come from. All I've ever wanted is just to have a family. That's it. That has love, acceptance, and and just to, I want my kids to come home to a place that's a really soft place to land every day. Like home is a place where I just want to go to. That's all I want to do. I don't need to be famous. I don't need to be anything. I just want my kids to be well-adjusted and know they're loved. And that's that's all I could ever ask for. That's, that's Thank perfect. You. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I I learned a lot. Yeah. And I love every every bit of that. I love what you said, something um, just right there at the end where you said, you have no, I just work to be normal. Yeah. And I, I've said that to my husband before. I'm like, you know, I, people don't realize, and I think I do this to other people as well, that I work hard every day to, to be a happy person. It doesn't come easy. It's not. I wake up and I'm just happy every day. <laughs> no. I work really hard. It's and a I, choice. And I think sometimes we assume that on other people that, oh, their life's so easy. They wake up and there's, it's like, no, people have these stories. And they wake up and they choose to be happy and they choose to put in the work to have a good, happy, healthy life. Yeah. So I appreciate the hope that you've given a lot of people. Thank you. I hope so. Very much so. Thanks, Andrew. Yep.